0: This is the second Sunday of Advent 2022. And as we mentioned last week, we are looking as a congregation through a few of the servant songs in preparation for the coming of the Lord, the celebration of the incarnation. And here we stand in this season of Advent. We stand with our Old Testament brothers and sisters looking forward in anticipation of his coming in the incarnation, but, of course, it's building the habit of anticipation, the habits of longing, the disciplines of longing, as we stand here in 2022 looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ again. But, wow, what a different place we stand in, for we have seen what the prophets long to see. We see the fulfillment of these prophecies, at least in their inauguration, in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we know there's more to be fulfilled in his second coming. So today, uh, last week we considered Isaiah 42. Today we consider Isaiah 49. And we'll be looking at the first 13 verses as we consider the servant of the Lord. Last week in chapter 42, we heard the servant in whom the Lord delights, his elect one, the one whom he has chosen. And we thought about that. This morning we come to 49, and it's interesting because we have a, a call and an imperative, an exhortation right at the beginning. Last week, you'll remember, it was Behold, look, and not just look, but look in delight, look and contemplate, fix your eyes on the Lord and on this truth, the servant that the Lord was proclaiming. Here we have an exhortation. But it's not to look; it's to listen. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. So that's good. Two weeks in a row, we get a good exhortative from the Lord, right? Look, behold, and listen. And we know listen again, like behold. It's more than hear, though. That would be fine to say, "Hear, O Israel," right? Um, but this is listen, attend to what is about to be told to you. Listen. O coastlands to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. So remember, now let's let's remember the context that Israel is in. Here, as Isaiah is being written, Israel is about to be sent out into exile. The world we already know is in darkness. The world world is spiraled down into chaos and darkness and despair. Sure, we know we have non-believing friends. We know that for a period of time you can delude yourself, for a period of time you can distract yourself, you can laugh and make merry. Okay, we, we know that, but it doesn't last. It only lasts till the next funeral. It, it only lasts till the next bad diagnosis. It only lasts to the next divorce, to the next you know layoff at work. To you know, you know, it, all the making merry is great as a distraction. It just doesn't sustain. Now, the world doesn't want to admit it, but the reality is there's nothing but despair, frankly. It's darkness. But Israel, Israel in the Old Testament, unique among all the nations of the world, had been given a promise, a promise that the the nations did not get directly. They, They were the people of light, if you will. They had received a great promise, but in some sense they had squandered it. They had sold their birthright, if you will. They decided they want a king like the other nations, as they did with David and Saul. They wanted to be like the other nations. They looked at the glory of the other nations, and they envied it, rather than than being the envy of the nations. They had God as their God. God as their king. God as their light. And yet, somehow, they preferred the darkness. They preferred what the other nations had. the, The pale, dim glory. Of the other nations. Well, as a result, Israel is being sent out into that darkness. They're about to go into that exile. They're about to undergo judgment. And in in some sense, we have a a reenactment, if you will, of the Garden of Eden as the people of God uh, are rebellious and kicked out of the great garden, not of Eden now, but of Israel, of Canaan, the land of flowing with milk and honey. And they are cast out of there outside the garden, into the land of the Gentiles, where they will be enslaved under these powers. And as they go, they receive the prophet's word of Isaiah. And it's warning them of the judgment that is to come, but it also has embedded in it these amazing and beautiful promises of restoration. And that's what we're in here at the end of Isaiah. It's, I mean, the end of Isaiah is so rich. Uh, Some have called it the fifth Gospel, uh, it's it's like the Old Testament gospel. It's just it's it's like rich food and 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 fine wine um, that we receive here as we take of it. So to Israel going out and really going to be in despair, you get that in verse fourteen, which is not our text, but nonetheless the part of the full chapter that we read. Zion has said, "The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me." Yeah, yeah, it's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like that as you are literally being dragged out in in uh, you know as slaves uh, t- to go to a hostile land and being run over and trampled. Your family literally split up and scattered all over the you know Persian you know the Babylonian world or the Assyrian world. It's 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 going to feel like you are completely and utterly forsaken, and therefore you need to listen. You need to listen. Because if not, then you will judge merely by what the eye sees and what the body feels. And you will be in utter despair. But you need to listen to what the Lord says. And brothers and sisters, we are not, while we are in in an analogous place to Old Testament Israel, as we've already confessed, we are in such a different place. For you have seen the Lord Jesus Christ come, die, and be raised from the dead. So so we have zero complaints. And yet, and yet, we at times feel this despair. We feel the overwhelming darkness. We feel the trouble come down upon us. Sometimes we feel the forsakenness uh, that that the prophet describes here. And therefore, in this analogous way, it is important that we also learn to listen that we remember man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need to behold, and you need to listen to, to what God says. Because if not, and you rely simply upon the things you see and experience in this life, it will lead you to despair. So I encourage you to hear then that what, what the Lord says. Listen to what he says. So what does he say? Well, he points us now to this servant. We were told last week to behold him. Now we're going to listen to what this conversation between God and him. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. Again, Just again, Isaiah couldn't have anticipated this, but you know the story of Jesus, who there even as he's being conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is given his name by the Lord by the angel right you will call this child jesus that the name was not up for grabs mary and joseph were not given options you will call his name deliverer okay that's what his name will be the lord has called me from the womb from the moment of his conception this servant was given a purpose and he was given a name he is he exists in his humanity to be Jesus, Yeshua, Deliverer. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And he has made me like a polished shaft. So notice the servant of the Lord is is armed up. He's geared up. He himself is like a sword. And he himself is like an arrow, polished and ready to do its work. It's piercing. The sword it's slaying. You'll remember in Revelation 19, when the Lord comes arriving, riding on the white horse, at the end of time, you'll remember there was a sword coming from his mouth. In In Revelation 1, when the Lord is speaking, Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord, is speaking to John. John turns to see the voice of the one who speaks. And this amazing description of Jesus, in vision language, is given to him. And what does he have? A sword. Coming forth from his mouth. For he is the word of God, and the word is the sword of the Spirit. He is a sword and he is a polished shaft. But notice in both of these descriptions of the servant, that again, Isaiah is only seeing in this imagery form. Notice both of these, he's hidden. He's hidden. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He has made me a polished shaft, a sharp arrow, but in his quiver, he has hidden me. That is to say, now now, where is, this, where is this hiding of the servant of the Lord? Here is the one by which the Lord will slay. Again, just see how this sword works itself out. How does the word of God slay? How does the arrow of the Lord slay? Pierce us. Well, it pierces us in conversion and regeneration, right? We yeah, Paul. Paul tells us to use this sword in in Ephesians six. You know, we battle not with flesh and blood, and we put on the full armor, and we wield the sword of the spirit. And it it's used to cut the heart. It's used to bring us to conversion, but it's also used to slay his enemies. In Revelation 19, he comes wielding that sword and destroying his enemies. So this is an amazing sword because it cuts to heal and it cuts to judge. It does both those things. It cuts this hard, crusty, calloused heart and makes it bleed and begin to beat again for the Lord. That's what it's done for us. It's it's the word of God that is done. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the sword of God is used to cut and, and cut the callus off of our hearts. And yet it also, on that final day, will come to judge. I remember a professor of mine saying in seminary, to remember that the Word of God is a two-edged sword. It does both these things. Even my preaching right now, as, not because of me, but because the Word of God as it's preached does one of two things. It softens us unto redemption or it hardens us for judgment. But there's no listening to the Word of God with neutrality. It cuts one way or the other. It's either cutting us for judgment or it is cutting to heal and to uh, redeem us. So the Lord is this for us. Yet at the same time, he has been hidden, he says. And I think that part of what this means, I mean, we can look at how this applies to the life and ministry of Jesus, but I think one thing he's saying here, because remember, this is to Isaiah, 700 years before the coming of Christ. That this servant of the Lord has been hidden. It's there. It will be revealed. The sword will be brought out. The arrow will be used. But for now, he is hidden in the hand of the Almighty. Right? He's got a sword up his sleeve. And in time, he will bring it forth and he will wield it. He has this polished arrow but it's tucked in the quiver, and in time he will bring it out. But in the Old Testament, it is hidden. Christ is hidden under types and shadows. He's hidden in the story of Israel. The story of Israel, as we're going to see here in a second, is his story. But Jesus is hidden in there. Isaiah even can't quite make out who this is, this servant. And the day will come when he is revealed. And there, in, in, our, in our word of exhortation today, in Matthew 3, You're going to get it. Jesus is going to show up while John the Baptist is doing his thing. And John the Baptist is going to say, behold, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Right? Look, there he is. If you will, the sword of the Lord is is exposed from being within the sleeve of God. No more hiddenness. There he is. The, quip, the arrow of the Lord is revealed from his quiver and about to do its work. Although in another sense, even in the life and ministry of Jesus, it still kind of remains hidden. It's, it's hidden in, even in the suffering nature of the servant because something else is going on in his ministry. But okay, so we've got this, listen to me, all you coastlands. Look at what the Lord is doing And now the servant again is speaking, right? It's a servant who's telling us all to listen. He's given me my name. I am the deliverer. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. He has made me like a polished shaft, but for the time being hidden within the palm of his hand, hidden within his quiver. Verse 3. And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now here, this this is beautiful, and it brings us back to something we said last week. Who is the servant of the Lord? Right? What's his identity? Now again, if we would have just read this and asked Isaiah, who is the servant of the Lord? He would have said, Israel? Because that's what it says here. He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel. Israel is the servant of the Lord, the one by whom, and I say one now, I'm speaking as the people, a nation, a tribe, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We talked about this last week. Remember, the whole world is is given over to Satan, if you will. We, we chose to ally with Satan. We committed, as R.C. Sproul says, cosmic treason against God. We, we told God to shove it. We don't want him. And we chose to listen to Satan. It's the, it's the horrific reality of what happened in the Garden of Eden. We literally said, we choose Satan over you, God. And God said, you will have him then. And the world... All humanity, all the nations of the earth plunged into darkness, plunged into alliance with the evil one. He is, if you will, the God of this age. And yet, of all these nations in darkness, God elected, God chose. Remember the text last week, you are my elect one. God chose, you are Israel whom I have chosen. He chooses Israel from all the nations of the world that through you, Abraham, and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Israel is the servant of the Lord through whom God is going to bless all the nations of the world. But as we've already said, Israel has sold their birthright. They have chosen to be like the other nations. They, are, they find themselves unable to do what God has called them to do. But of this nation, God sends a representative. God sends a Messiah. God sends the Christ, the anointed one, the king, the representative of the people of Israel, so that in him, all the fortune, all the responsibility of Israel falls. This is who the servant is. He is Israel. And yet, he represents Israel. And you get this in the text. So in verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel. Sounds corporate. Sounds like Israel as a people is the servant being personified as a man. But then notice down in verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. That is to say, You're my servant, O Israel, and I've called you so that you can deliver Israel. He's Israel, and yet he is delivering Israel. Yeah, he's delivering the tribes of Jacob, but you just said the tribes of Jacob are the servant. And it's yes and no. Israel is the servant of the Lord and Jesus Christ is the representative of the servant of the Lord and hence he is the servant of servants right he, he is he all of the responsibility of Israel is funneled onto him so that he represents Israel he comes to deliver Israel so that by delivering Israel he may deliver the nations so who is this servant it is Israel that is to say it is Jesus Christ who is the representative of Israel, which which again, and we can talk about this in Sunday school, but it comes back to something Betty asked. I can't remember if it was in in uh, table talk or in Sunday school. But when we talk about the nation of Israel and the importance of Israel, and even today, and what happens with Israel, and is this thing happening to Israel? Judgment of God against them. It's very important for us to remember that in the Old Testament, the whole fortune and responsibility of Israel, which they forsook funnels onto Jesus so that when Jesus comes and does what he does, he does it as Israel and for Israel so that in him, all of Israel is redefined. There is no Israel outside of Jesus. I understand to a Jew that might be very offensive, but I don't stand on Bill Spanger's word. I stand on the Bible. So, so what the Bible says is that Jesus is Israel. And therefore, to be part of Israel, now by this I don't mean some geopolitical state, that is what it is, but in terms of the big story of redemption, to be part of Israel is not to be part of some genetic race of people that happened to link back to Abraham. To be part of Israel is to be united to Messiah. It's to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it to the Galatians, that is, it is to have faith. And if you have faith in Messiah, then you are part of Israel. Regardless, he can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. Uh, 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 John the Baptist said that in our text today. Don't, Don't say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Gee whiz. God could raise up sons to Abraham from these stones. In fact, he did it from something more offensive than stones. He did it from Gentiles. He raised up sons of Abraham from Gentiles of all people. So who is the servant? Yes, it's Israel. But Israel forsook its task. And Jesus, the representative, the servant of servants, comes that he might take up that task and redeem them. Now notice, as such, in verse 4, he shares the cry of Israel. Right? The servant. He said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. I mean, this is Israel's cry. What, what good is it to be the people of God? Here we go out into exile to Assyria. What is all our labor done? Why have we even tried to obey you? What good was it? Here, the, the older brother in the in the parable of the prodigal son. Oh, what, what good has it been to be your son and to be so faithful to you? Your, your, your rotten younger son comes home and you throw a big party for him. And here we are laboring in the field. Never once have you offered me even a goat to share with my friends whiny. But this is the cry of Israel. What good is it to be the people of God if we end up enslaved by the Gentiles themselves? And Jesus takes up that cry. The servant takes up that cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries on the cross. He takes up the cry of his representatives, uh, of the one he represents. Excuse me. He takes up the cry of Israel. Israel says in verse 14, as we've already said, but Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Hear that when Jesus prays it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He he is standing in the place of Israel. He's standing in as their representative that he might fulfill their task and by doing so bring light to the Gentiles. So I have labored even he he shares their cry but then you hear he turns yet surely my re- just reward is with the Lord and my and my work with my God father into thy hands I commit my spirit I feel the forsakenness yet all I I, I trust that my reward is in your hands therefore into thy hands father I commit my spirit and so the, the, the theme turns. He shares Israel's cry, but now it turns. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I will be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing. And sometimes this is also phrased in a question, is it too small a thing? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So here again, we have the, the work of this servant. This was the job of Israel, which they abdicated, but it's certainly the work of Israel's representative. That is not just to redeem Israel. That's never what it was about. Israel was always a means to an end. And that, that, doesn't, that doesn't minimize them. It's a glorious means. Mary is a means to an end. And yet women will call her blessed above all women for all eternity. So being a means to an end, I'm not like diminishing the role of Israel. It's magnified. What an amazing thing to be the one through whom Messiah comes to bless the world. But they're a means to an end. It was never about Israel, just like it's never about, not just about Mary. It's about Mary bringing forth Messiah so that the world may be blessed. It's about Israel so that through Israel, Messiah might come so that light might come to the nations. It's too little of a thing to think about Israel. And about bringing back the captives from exile. That's a great thing. It's just too tiny. You're looking too small. It's about bringing back the captives from darkness, from their exile. And that's what this this servant has come to do. He is going to bring us all back from exile. He will be a light, not just to Israel in her darkness, but will be a light to all the nations. That's what we long for, and that's what we celebrate. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, verse 7 Their holy one, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. And here we're talking about Israel, but of course, Jesus. Right. He's, he, he is slandered by the nations. He is slandered by the rulers of the earth. He is despised by the rulers of the earth. He is crucified by the rulers of the earth. And yet the time will come where kings shall see thee and arise. Kings don't stand for anyone you stand in the presence of the king. The king remains seated. He does not stand in honor of you. You stand in honor of him. But here, this one who is the servant of servants is going to be such that kings of the earth will see him, and kings will rise and stand before him, and princes will fall on their faces before him. Think of, again, I just for me it all comes back to Philippians chapter 2, that He, though he was God, became, you know, did not count equality with God, something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee might bow, every tongue confess. Princes will fall before him. Kings will stand in his honor and all will give praise to him and by that God himself will be glorified. And they will all say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kings will do that. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Thus says the Lord in an acceptable time, I have heard you. So I titled my sermon today, Listen to the God who hears. Right? We listen, we listen to the God who has heard our cries. Okay? He has heard. He's heard the cries of Israel. You've forsaken me. Think about Israel in Egypt as well, right? Under the hand of Pharaoh. The Lord comes to Moses and He says, Moses, go, for I have heard the cries of my people. He has heard our cries. Therefore, we ought to listen to him in the acceptable time. Think in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son at the right time. He has heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. He's putting it in that prophetic past tense. I have helped you as a co- and I will preserve you. He's speaking to the servant and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth. And to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may go and say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. And they will feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be in all the desolate heights. They will neither hunger or thirst. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send you, and you're gonna come at the right time, at the appropriate time, at the fullness of time. And you will turn, you will turn everything over. You will bring light into the darkness, you will bring bounty into the the desolation you will bring freedom to the captives neither hunger nor thirst nor heat nor sun shall strike them think of this is a beautiful image from the end of revelation as well for he who has mercy on them will lead them even by springs of water he will guide them and here we can hear language of john the baptist I will make each of my mountains a road and my highway shall be elevated, right? The, the low places will be raised, the high places brought down, the crooked places made straight, right? Nothing's gonna stop me from doing this. I'm coming. The servant of the Lord is coming. Make clear the paths. That's what John the Baptist is doing, right? Repent. Make the way of the Lord. Prepare. The kingdom of God is at hand. I will make my mountains a road. The highway shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look. Look, those from the north and the west, those from the land of Sinem. Right? They're going to be pouring in from all over the place. Because the light is going to go out into the darkness of all the world. And what's our what's to be the response? Sing. Mark said there will be a lot of singing on the Christmas Eve Eve service. Yes, yeah, of course, there's a lot of singing around Christmas. And as Christians, we do it all the time because every Sunday is like a little celebration of this. Sing, O oh heavens. Be joyful, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. The servant of servants has come. Listen. As you're wandering in darkness, as you're dealing with the travail of this life, give ear to what the Lord says. He has sent his servant, and he will bring joy to the nations, and undo the curse. Far as the curse is found, he will undo it and set all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as those who by nature dwell in darkness, as those who have sold our birthright for a bit of partage. Father, we thank you for the gift of your servant who has come and stood in our place, who has borne our cry, who has taken it up into his own life and who has redeemed it, who has responded to it, and as such is able to set the captives free and bring those dwelling in darkness out that they may see light. Fill the mouths of the mute that we might sing for joy and praise to you. Oh, Father, fill our hearts with singing, we pray. Help us to understand the desolation that is ours apart from Christ that we might rejoice all the days of our life, and that our singing might be contagious, that you would use it as a sharp sword, as a polished shaft to pierce the hearts of our loved ones and friends who do not know you, that they too may join in singing and come out from their prison of a soul that they might give you praise and glory. Father, we give you thanks today, and we sing praise to you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.